0: Hello and welcome back to our series of interviews with Dr Nigel Bowles. Previously we addressed the relationship between the president and their level of influence over congress and today we'll be looking at the relationship between the president and the executive particularly the cabinet. Um, just like to what you've been saying about congress I think It's clear that the president has not got much leverage um, and isn't solely responsible for setting the agenda, like you said. Um, But if I was to shift the focus to the executive, would you say they have a lot more leverage and control of the agenda in relation to cabinet? So, for example, I think it's an assumption um, amongst many that in the US, due to the presidential system, the president dominates their cabinet and so has a high level of persuasion over the cabinet and their departments. Um, Is this true or do you think it might be a mistake to see it that way?
1: I think it might be a mistake to see it that way. (laughs) Um, So uh, there is no, Rebecca, let's agree on on this point at least, there is no single truth awaiting definitive discovery and definitive settlement with regard to the problem you've just pointed. It's a very good question to raise. It's a fundamental question. Um, Let's think about it. I mean, you say it's that you refer to, I think, as the president's cabinet. Um, And you also use the expression, if we think about the executive, well, what the executive is, is itself problematic. So. By the executive, we might mean the president. We might mean the president and the executive office of the president, which is to say the White House staff, the Office of Management and Budget, national security staff, and several other agencies which are part of the uh, executive office of the president, which exists as a legal construct. So that's definition number two. Um, definition number three would be uh, the president plus um cabinet members, plus sub-cabinet members, and we're talking here of about 3,000 political appointees at the top of eight federal agencies. Uh, So that's definition number three. And definition number four will be one, two, and three, plus all the civil and military servants who are employed by the federal government. And definition number five will be one which has become rather more important over the last 30 years, which is one, two, three, and four, plus those companies and individuals who, though not federal employees directly, are in fact contracted to the federal government. If you just think about defense, you'll see immediately how large a category that is, because um, many defense contractors are effectively wholly dependent, or at least let us agree overwhelmingly dependent upon the contracts they have with the federal government to supply aircraft or bits or uh, uniforms or shoes or whatever boots for army uh, soldiers Um, those contractors are, are, are as it were at the periphery of the executive of the federal government so what the executive is is not clear and the answer you get to your question i think varies depending on whether you mean one two three four or five but and um, there's always a but, and it's a big but here. It's a really big but, and it is a particular expression of the separation of powers. If there is one, if there were one characteristic of the United States government, which I think most, not all, but the great majority of foreign observers, at least journalists, and politicians at least those politicians i've spoken to don't quite get It, it is that most of the executive which is to say categories two three and four of the five i've given you categories two three and four are in fact um creations not um of the president they're creations of congress um And sometimes people find that a little startling, Um, but it is the case. So the Department of State exists because Congress created it. Created it in 1789 by an act. And um, Congress has the power to unmake the Department of State and to modify the Department of State, to move bureaus around from the Department of State elsewhere and to move bureaus into the Department of State. And it does that sort of thing occasionally, often after a crisis. Say, so for example, after 2001, the United States Secret Service, which had been an agency within the Department of the Treasury, was moved to the new Department of Homeland Security. Um, why was the Secret Service, essentially an agency of the Treasury? clue the answers always in history. (laughs) So the historical the answer which is I think the correct answer is that the secret service was established in the 19th century as an as an anti counterfeiting agency. So it was designed to counter the attempts to um, to uh, forge, for example, US Treasury securities, and US Treasury notes and bills. It only acquired the uh, secondary responsibility for for uh, protecting VIPs at a later stage. That's a sidebar question. The fundamental structural question is that executive agencies, any executive, all but a very small number of executive agencies are in fact created by Congress. And because they're created by Congress, they can be modified by Congress in law. And because they, can, they are created by Congress and are subject to modification by Congress, Congress has a very real interest in what those agencies do. And those agencies, therefore, this is the key analytical point, those agencies, therefore, have a relationship of accountability, which is not simple. So there is, you, you pointed, Rebecca, to the claim, which is or the assumption, which is the common one, that departments through all the way through their civil servants through uh, the deputy assistant secretaries assistant secretaries under secretaries deputy secretaries and secretary of a department let's say the secretary of transportation who sits in the cabinet that they are in some sense subject to presidential direction or at least heavy presidential influence. And the truth of the matter is the American government does not have a hierarchy of that kind, in my judgment. And it doesn't because the Department of Transportation has, has a fundamental responsibility, which is to enact, to implement laws which are actually on the statute book, which affect that department. And those depart- that department's programs, the implementation of those departments, that department's programs are, and this is true of all departments, an obligation upon which Congress typically insists. And so Congress, Congress has a relationship with those departments and agencies, which can be characterized by a relationship, by thinking of it as a relationship of accountability. And for most agencies, most of the time, that relationship with Congress, and more particularly with specialised congressional committees, is at least as important, if not more important, than the relationship with the president. And that is less obviously true of um, departments where the president has a continuing political stake, treasury, state, defense. But it's much more obviously true. Um, Congress matters much more with respect to most other agencies most of the time. Now, there are exceptions, because stuff happens, and history changes. Uh, Sometimes there are exogenous events which change the agenda. Um, But Congress, through the committee system, through the regular cycle of um, reauthorization of departments and of their programs through the separate regular cycle of appropriations of funding to those programs congress matters hugely congress is the first branch of american government in my view um, it doesn't mean to say that it always matters more than the president that's not true but it is to say it is a fundamental and enduring importance the last point I want to make about, about um, the limits to thinking about persuasion is, is this, that you know, we don't make history. Our elected representatives do not simply act on history. History acts on elected representatives. Stuff happens. You know, a virus mutates and switches species from a bat in a wet market in Wuhan and over the succeeding 16 months, takes 10% of the GDP out of the United Kingdom and kills 125,000 British people. That's not government setting the agenda. That's a damn virus setting the agenda. That's about mutation and species transfer. Similarly, financial crises aren't the product of government the agenda. Financial crises, I'm not suggesting for a second, financial crises happen for, by accident. They happen for a reason. And there might be policy failures which contribute to that emergence. But financial crises, banking crises, which tend to produce recessions that are both, that are A, D and B of much longer duration than conventional recessions. Um, banking crises can happen typically do they don't happen because presidents want them. Presidents do not want them to happen. Nobody wants banking crises to happen. Um except from those people who've shorted bank shares. Um but uh it's an exogenous event and exogenous events affect politics in all sorts of surprising ways. The, you know those of us sitting around this virtual room this morning inhabit a world very different from the one that we imagined eighteen months ago. If I'd said to you 18 months ago, if you said to me 18 months ago, you know what? I think um, there's a significant chance that in the course of the next 18 months, we're gonna see the emergence of a a virus uh, related to MERS and SARS, which is just going to rip through the world and devastate the economies of Latin America, the United States, and uh, much of Western Europe. I don't think. They, I think we would have thought that a very low probability outcome. Well, guess what? Low probability events sometimes happen, and it was a low probability event. Very low probability, but it, it, it occurred. And um, under those circumstances, presidents do not set the agenda; they have to respond to it. Which brings us back to our discussion about Trump. You know, he had he has he had the luxury of choice. And that is, that is what, that's a characteristic of executives. They, they do have the luxury of choice. Now, you might not think of it as a luxury if you're facing a, facing a national indeed international disaster such as the pandemic was and is. But he does have agency. He did have agency. He could have handled it differently. He could have risen above himself and acted as a as a serious grown-up of well, pump, with seriousness of purpose and said you know what where we have as a nation as a world to face up to the magnitude of this crisis is how we do. total transparency complete mobilization of all of our intellectual and scientific resources all of the organizational capacity of the federal government and my primata. I do not care whether I'm re-elected in November, I do care that we save American lives. You get Trump making that speech on March the eighteenth last year, and any of us could have written that speech for him. You get a different outcome. You know, sure, lots of people are still going to die, but it's it strains credulity to think that the outcome would have been as bad as it actually has been. So executives do have the luxury of choice even when they're facing formidable obstacles. a formidable challenge. you know think of Britain in 1940. Now, I know it's a sort of, uh, culture saturated with warm with war memories, but it is a remarkable a remarkable option and and it's not the case that the only option before the British Prime minister in May 1940 was to say we're not going to we're not going to surrender um lots of politicians thought it was a really good idea to fight to to cut a deal with nazi Germany, including including lord halifax who very nearly became prime minister so there are always other options Uh, just because b happened to follow a doesn't mean that b necessarily follows a different choices could have been made and um history could have turned out very, very differently. It's constantly turning out differently, partly because it, precisely because of the choices that individuals made. So we in thinking about American politics, we're doing something rather special because the structures of American politics are like the structures of no other country. They're a bit like those of Brazil, but Brazilian political culture is so different from that of the United States, um, although they've had remarkably similar responses to COVID. And remarkably similar irresponsible behavior by the by the two presidents concerned. But otherwise, the, the politics are rather different. So American politics are distinctively structurally different. And I just cannot emphasize enough that you know, whatever the question in American government, the fact of the separation of powers and the implications of the separation of powers, and the absolute centrality of the United States Congress to everything that the executive in the sense of the second third and fourth definitions of the executive that i gave um the centrality of congress to um what the executive does how it does it um it's financing that centrality just needs to be emphasized and underlined in bold type in capital letters because it has It's changed, but um, Congress is less central than it was to some aspects of American politics, especially foreign policy, especially the deployment of force abroad, but uh, it persists. And it, it persists because that's what Article 1 says. It's Article 1 for a reason. Gosh, we've been talking for an hour.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, So I think just listening to that, it kind of sounds like you're talking about a scale of importance in relation to the power of persuasion over the cabinet. So say Congress is more significant than the president on this scale. Would you say that, uh, say, pressure groups are a significant section on this scale and that perhaps their role uh, takes away further from the president's persuasion?
1: Well, it's a fur- it's a further constraint. I mean, if you think about if you think about presidential freedom of action, um, yeah, it is a constrained freedom of action, and and groups are constrained. I mean, I come back again to the um, to African American lobbying groups in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties in particular, and their use of the courts to advance civil rights reform, um, and uh, that. Um, you know, that is a pretty powerful example of, organized, of an organised interest group at work being exceptionally well-led. Um, of course, to some extent, it's cutting with the grain of public opinion, but it's also the case that it's shaping that public opinion. You know, it's both acted upon by public opinion, it's also shaping public opinion. So skillfully led and using, using the law um, in order to litigate Against state governments, against the federal government, um, in respect of uh, civil rights reform. So, in a society as open as the United States, groups always, but always matter. There are constraints. It doesn't mean they always win. You know, I, you know, if in teaching in Oxford, I used to sometimes used to tease tease students, and um, who at least initially, an in essay is on you know essays and their writings on American government would tend to would tend to make the comforting but false assumption that um corporate interest groups in particular are all powerful well you know of course there are cases where it seemed that seems to be the case you know, I can think of cases of industrial pollution, for example, resistance to pollution regulations, which suggests that interest groups are extraordinarily powerful. But there's often an alignment between those interest groups and, for example, local opinion. Coal companies and coal miners in West Virginia and Kentucky have had ferocious disputes, but they are united on one proposition, that coal needs to be part of the West Virginia and, East and Kentucky economy. And whatever else they disagree on they agree on that so there's often an alignment but it's also the case that if it really were the case that powerful well-resourced interest groups such as Ford Motor Company and General Motors to take two rather ni- now rather antique examples but very powerful examples if those two companies which in the 50s and 60s and 70s were hugely powerful in all sorts of ways But if it were the case that they were all powerful, we would never have had seat belts. We would never have had crumple zones. Cars wouldn't have become so much safer. Now they might have become somewhat safer because companies might have seen some commercial possibilities in their becoming safer. But the main reason they become safer is because government regulation was actually imposed upon those companies over their intense objections. No car company today would think of saying, well, I think it's a good idea to you know, cut the costs of cars. So we're going to cut, we're going to remove seatbelts from our cars. They're not going to do that. My point is simply that government sometimes defeats interest groups. And it did in the case of car safety.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr Bowles. In the final episode, we'll be asking him about the president's relationship with the public. We hope to see you there.